Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. But well, uh, that's it. You, sorry. You remember the play very well. So Do I? I probably do. Yeah, don't. that's you. But you do, though. <laughs> Oh, okay. In fact, you stole a lot of jokes from my summary that you haven't read. Oh, so sorry. How dare you? Get out of my brain. This is what uh, happens. Get out of my brain. I wrote the summary before you did this. <laughs> and you're right. I didn't read it. Yeah. It's because, well, I'm going to stop in talking cold. and we're just going to get into it. Okay. Sounds good. I'm going to show my hand. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about my 10th favorite play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Ooh, 10th favorite. Could you be more effusive? Well, I'm like... (laughs) I'm sort of guessing because it used to be it used to be in my top five and then oh. it got bumped and bumped and bumped and bumped. Um, and then like I had for sure like my top seven and it. So I think I think it's like I think it's number 10. It's I think it comes after King John, which I think is nine. So. OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Well, you're so precise. I well, stopped I stopped grouping I, yeah. after the top five, really. Sure. Um. Yeah, I suppose if I was forced to, I'd have a general understanding of what's in my top 10, but I don't think yeah. I do really yeah. fully, not fully like consciously formed in my brain. Sure. But uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Every week we will discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Blanket Shakespeare. <laughs> I don't know why that struck me as so funny. If it's good enough for um, Michael Jackson, it's good enough for Shakespeare. You are correct, William Blanket Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. That is the introductory stuff, everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes, and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions, man. Yeah. Uh, but before we jump into any of that, we like to do what's called the rhetorical device of the week. Because we're word nerds, each week we will draw a random device from our handy-dandy stack of ASC, a rhetorical device, flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, little bird. Yeah, little bird. I'm just going to fan out some colors. I want that. Is it must be orange, question mark? And it's right between a purple and a blue. The orange between the purple and the blue. Aha, uh-huh, yes. That this one. one. Ooh, this one is erotima. Uh, I think you mean erotima. Pretty sure it's erotima. Yeah, but erotima is for more fun to say because it sounds like erotica. That's true. That's true. 
Erotima or erotima, depending on how foxy you're feeling. E R O E R O T E M A. I can speak today. Uh, it is a form of substitution. It is the substitution of an interrogative sentence for a declarative statement. And in non-nerd speak, that means it's asking a question instead of making a statement. Yeah, Uh, asking a question to affirm or deny a point. Right. It's a question asked when the questioner doesn't really need or expect a response when the answer is obvious. It's, It's a rhetorical question. This is your fancy word for rhetorical question. The example given to us is Shylock from The Merchant of Venice. He says, say it, at, say it with me at home if you know where I'm going. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? So pretty, pretty classic uh, erotima there. Some rhetorical questions for which Shylock doesn't actually need answers. Also a great example of isocolon, which is repeated structure that we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, just throwing that out there. Because I can. Uh, also, really great example of anaphora, which is the repetition of beginnings. If you, etc., etc. If you, etc. Rhetoric is like that, man. It's so layered. Anyway, erotima. It's the uh, fancy term for ero- ero- I've almost said erotic questions. It's well, because you put I that mean, in my head. Yeah, but <laughs> rhetorical you're not questions. Wrong. I'm not wrong. I think an erotic question is definitely an example yeah. of erotima. There it is. There you go. That's what it is. I'm just buying time while I put my shit away. Okay, and it's now time for your burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Okay, kids, no need to get comfy because this is going to be real fast. Uh, this week I want to talk about pants rolls, and I don't really have much to say about them other than what they are. So a pants roll um, is a fancy... Well, it's not even really that fancy. It is a term for a female role in uh, primarily early modern drama, but also, I suppose, all drama. Um, uh, a female role who she cross-dresses uh, as, a, as a boy. She pretends to be a boy for some kind of reason. So she puts on pants. Therefore, it is a pants role. Two Gentlemen of Verona has one. Cymbeline has one. Uh, Twelfth Night has one. As You Like It has one. One of my favorite plays, Climbing and Calamities, has one, which I've talked about on this pod before a little bit. It's not Shakespeare. Um, they're kind of all over the place. Uh, it's that's what it is. I got it. That's it. That's what I have to say about a pants roll. So wait, in a pants roll, they wear pants. They wear pants. But oh. it's a, it's a woman wearing pants. That's right. the key the key part. Like <laughs> a dudes. woman in pants. I know. Shocking. Get me my smelling salts. Shocking. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Um. That's that's it. I like it's it's a phrase that I think we've mentioned several yes. times, and I finally decided, hey, let's uh, define that. No, that's good. Yeah, let's clarify what we mean by that. Know. Because we're trying to be more inclusive with our language and bring people yep. into the vernacular. I get yep. it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Uh, brevity is the soul of wit. Yep. That was your very brief burbage break with Master mm. Master Hamlet. So, oh, there's a noise. There's yeah. a noise. Sorry. I'm noise. Great. So we're going to play a game. 
Yeah. Uh, and you know that when the game comes early, it's because one of us is going to fail at Shakespeare. And uh, if yep. you listen to the intro, it's not going to be me because nope. this is one of my favorite plays. So Aubrey's going to fail at Shakespeare. Um, fail so hard. You get time for this. Yeah? I do. Get, I, like, get, I get a minute to okay. try to tell the people right. what I remember this play to be about. Cool. Which, given my history of terrible reading retention and the fact that I haven't read or seen this play in roughly five years, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun, y'all. Let's find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting bad at Shakespeare. Wow. <laughs> wow. Did I just date myself there real wow. bad? I did, didn't I? All right. Whenever you're okay. ready. <laughs> yep, I'm ready. Okay, so Proteus and Valentine are low-key kind of gay for each other, but... One of them leaves to go somewhere else. Uh, and while he's there, he falls in love with this girl named Sylvia. What light is light if Sylvia be not seen from the documentary Shakespeare in Love? And um, there are two clowns, one of whom has a dog and a sad family. Um, I don't know how they're connected to anyone, but they're funny. And the dog won't do what What's-His-Face wants it to do. Uh, meanwhile, the other gentleman of Verona also sneaks to the place where the girl is. And he falls in love with her, too. And then he, like, breaks the bro code really bad. Oh, that's Proteus. Right, because he's bad. Um, then he tries to rape her. Meanwhile, his girlfriend that he left behind follows him disguised as a boy. Um, and yet... Despite everything telling her otherwise, she forgives him. Everyone forgives him, and I don't know why. I don't know why this play is funny, aside from the clowns. End of end of summary. Great. <laughs> Great. All right. So um, we always like to to gift you with a five word unhelpful title. Also, minus six because I couldn't figure out how to condense. But here it is: girl lowers standards for trash guy. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine's seven, so oh, okay. and it's That's cool. love and a bit with a dog yep. from the documentary Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, that's all you need: love and a bit with a dog. That's this play. That's mm-hmm. they are talking about this play as yeah. that is describing the, that yeah. describes this play. Yeah, because so. it was Shakespeare's like early sort of big hit, one of his big yeah. hits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a uh, question mark. Maybe the first play he wrote. Um, yeah, it's very, you know, very early. This and, and Shrew and... Comedy of Errors. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, one of the Henry Sixes are all sort mm-hmm. of like, question mark, the first play Shakespeare right, wrote. Right, 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 So, yeah. I also referenced that particular moment in Shakespeare in Love. Today, I was leading a tour, and I was trying to tell people about Will Kemp, and I was like... You know that part in the documentary Shakespeare in Love with the clown who's like, when are you going to write me a serious part, Will? I could do it. And I was like, he's he's playing Speed or Lance or whoever it is. You know, he's like, I could do it, Will. I could do it. That's Will Kemp. And they were like, oh, because people actually remember that. Yeah. Anyway, that movie is very useful. (laughs) Silly. But historically, sort of holds up, and it's useful as a point of reference for these things. A documentary. Yeah, so. it is. It's a documentary, like its companion piece, The Tudors. Yes, also <laughs> documentary. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's amazing. Okay, let's talk dramatis personae, but only mm. the really important ones. So we start with Proteus, who is a gentleman of Verona. Mm, yes, we have Valentine, another gentleman of Verona. 
They're besties. They're kind of gay for each other. Oh, yeah. So then there's Julia, who is a woman of Verona. And then there's Sylvia, a woman of Milan, or Milan, as the people say. But we're going to pronounce it Milan, I assume, because yeah, that's how it scans that's in the that, text. That's how it scans. Great. Uh, then there's the Duke of Milan, her father. Mm-hmm. Then there's Lance, Proteus's servant. Ah, he's his servant. I forgot. Uh-huh. That's what I forgot. <laughs> and Speed, who is Valentine's servant. That's why there's two clowns. Okay. Yep. Sorry. It's all coming back to me now. Um, then there's Crab, Speed's dog. Mm. Thurio is a suitor to Sylvia in Millen. Mm-hmm. Then there's a guy with a really fun name to say, Sir Eglamore, who's a friend to Sylvia. There's also the bandits in the <gasps> woods outside Millen. The bandits. I love the bandits. Makes They're them sound like a band. Part. Well, like, I mean, yeah, but like like a rock band. I'm imagining like the Beatles, but it's the bandits. So, Jess, lay it on me. Why is this place so goddamn popular? Well, um, it's not super popular, but it is. It is popular. It does get done. Um, cause it's a comedy and mm-hmm. you know, it's a romantic comedy and it's fun and it's got some good roles for women. Uh, but also it's kind of problematic. Um, just kind of, but double also, it contains the most perfect 15 lines Shakespeare ever wrote ever in the world and some land pirates cause the bandits and also <laughs> it's got a dog like, come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, I love this play. I do for all of its uh, for all of its problems. Mm-hmm. I love this play. Um, yeah, I don't want to show my hand sure. too much, uh, sure. but the reasons that it is popular is the dog and the strong women and the fun jokes and the land pirates. That's it. That's what do I. Do you mean um, the the perfect fifteen lines? Are you talking about the what light is light if Sylvia be not yes. seen? Yeah. I mean, it's good. There's a reason why everyone auditioned with it in the documentary Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's some good shit. It's summary time, bitches. So we are now going to summarize the two gentlemen of Verona for you in a segment that this week we are calling the one summary of not Verona. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Got lazy. <laughs> Okay, I'm mm-hmm. ready when you are. Oh, right. I need to time get that, this shit. Get that Sorry. timer going. Sorry. I mean, we Sorry. don't need to time it. We can pretend that we time it. No, but we're going to time it because... <sighs> because integrity or whatever. Yeah, and also because we don't need to dilly-dally. We're going to get the let out. Okay. You're doing great. You're doing I great. I like dilly-dallying. Thank yeah, you. But we can't when we have a five-minute summary. I know. Okay, you ready? Yes. All right, act one. Valentine is leaving for Millen, and his BFF Proteus is bummed because they're totally in love, but not in a gay way, but definitely a little bit in a gay way, but not really. Uh, Proteus gets back to wooing Julia, and he sends her a letter. Julia gets the letter, but she rips it up so she can seem like she doesn't care because of women. Uh, but then she finds a piece with her name on it and a piece with Proteus's name on it, and she makes them kiss, and it's adorable, but also it's ridiculous. Then Proteus's dad decides to send him off to Millen as well. In Act 2, in Millen, Valentine is in love with the Duke's daughter, Sylvia, and his manservant, Speed, teases him about it. Sylvia flirts hard, and Valentine is super dense, because men, and it's hilarious, but also Valentine's a dummy. 
before Proteus leaves for Milan, he exchanges rings with Julia as tokens of their love. And Proteus's servant Lance doesn't want to leave and is sad because his dog Crab doesn't seem sad to leave he's a dog. Back in Millen, Valentine and his rival Thurio are trading barbs. Uh, that's not a person barb. That's a witty barb. Anyway, uh, then the Duke... Is, I'm, I can't. I'm sorry. Then the Duke comes in and announces that Proteus is coming to court and Valentine is so stoked to have his bestie coming and he tells the Duke how awesome Proteus is and then Proteus arrives and immediately falls in love with Sylvia on sight because he's a worthless, worthless man. Valentine tells Proteus that he and Sylvia are secretly engaged and even though the Duke wants to wants Sylvia to marry Thurio and Valentine and Sylvia are planning to elope that night in an easily foiled plan involving a rope ladder and Proteus is only slightly conflicted in falling in love with Sylvia because it means he's going to lose both Valentine and Julia because like he's so sure he's going to get her but he resolves to get in the way anyway because he is complete shit which is why he's on our dick bracket list back in Verona Julia decides to cross dress and follow Proteus to Milan because she misses him too much all right, Proteus tells the Duke that Valentine and Sylvia are planning to elope, and the Duke foils their plan because it's real dumb. Then he banishes Valentine from the city on pain of death. Valentine gives a beautiful speech that is so fucking perfect and is also quoted in the documentary Shakespeare in Love. Also, the Duke locks up Sylvia to keep her from running off to join Valentine in exile. The Duke then asks Proteus how best to make Sylvia fall in love with Thurio, and Proteus agrees to Cyrano de Bergerac that ish and help Thurio woo Sylvia, but really he's going to get Sylvia for himself. In Act 4, in the woods, Valentine and Speed are set upon by bandits, but Valentine is so noble and polite that the bandits make him their leader, of course. Uh, Valentine is now King Bandit! Proteus feels kind of bad for betraying Valentine, but not so bad that he's going to change anything about what he's doing because he sucks. In her disguise as a boy, Julia enters and hears Proteus singing a love song to Sylvia, and she's completely heartbroken, especially because Proteus tells Sylvia that Julia is dead. Oh my God, why is he the fucking worst? Sylvia gets her friend Sir Eglamore to help her run away. Lance talks about Crab's foibles, and it's adorable. Proteus has taken on the disguise disguised Julia as his page boy and tells her to deliver a love token to Sylvia, but it's the ring that Julia gave to Proteus back in Act 2. What a shit. Julia takes the ring to Sylvia, who feels bad about the woman that Proteus gave up and also isn't interested in Proteus at all, and Julia feels a little bit better at that, and at least Proteus gave her up for someone who's super great. Sylvia and Sir Eglamore make their way to the woods, where they are immediately overtaken by the bandits, and Sylvia gets kidnapped. Valentine investigates a scuffle and he finds Proteus and Julia rescuing Sylvia from the bandits. He watches from behind a shrub because that's not fucking creepy at all. Uh, while Proteus gets angrier and angrier that Sylvia isn't into him and then he tries to rape her because he is trash. Valentine intervenes and threatens to kill Proteus. Proteus repents and Valentine forgives him because bros and also men are all kind of fucking terrible. And then Valentine offers to give Sylvia Sylvia to Proteus because what the actual fuck and then Julia faints which is how they all discover her identity and then everything gets straightened out and pretty much everyone lives happily ever after even though the men in this play are terrible the end that crash you just heard was me flipping a table at these men I had forgotten about the part where Valentine's like yeah I love her but you can you can have her bro it's fine yeah it's because fucked. women are furniture apparently <sighs> Jesus how long yep. did that take us Four and a half minutes. Oh, see, we're good. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Yeah, this play is all kinds of extra and problematic. Like, yeah, such problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love it, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, it has a certain charm, much it, not unlike, you know, Measure for Measure has its problems mm-hmm. and oh, also its charm. Measure for Measure. And I All's Well That Ends Well. more than this play. Yeah. I might need to rethink where this play stands. It might not be number 10. Maybe it's mm. number 11. Maybe mm. it's 12. Who can say? I Here's what we're going to do is we're going to stop the podcast right now, and I'm going to go make a list of mm-hmm. every single play in the canon in Good. the order that I like them, and then I'm going to report Good, because those don't already exist. You have to hand write out your own list. Great. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then you're going to rank them. Yes, Good job. I'm, I'm going to do it while our listeners listen oh, great, to yeah. me doing it because i think that's really exciting podcasting so yeah good um, plot very good welcome friends to the hurly burly shakespeare show <laughs> in which this week i will be ranking all 38 plays in <laughs> real time so here mm, we go number yes. one <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so skipping pair, that <laughs> <laughs> number two is the winner's tale oh my goodness number three oh. is as you like it uh, sorry anyway. i'll stop <laughs> no i'm just i'm just amazed at how wildly disparate our top three are number four is 12th um, night i just i can't even i can't even with you right now like why okay i'm so, a perfect what you're a perfect twat yes that's true fuck off <laughs> Um, so back to two gents. Things to say about the text. Please, please say them. Please say them. Super nerdy this week, you guys. I love it a lot. It's like I'm going, I'm going straight back to the text. Okay. Let me have it. So the two gentlemen of Verona is the second play in the 1623 folio, and it is sandwiched between the Tempest and the Merry Wives of Windsor. It was the second play to be set by the compositors, and it was printed at the same time as the Merry Wives of Windsor, which accounts for the incorrect running header on the last two pages. Uh, The last two pages of two gents are headed as the Merry Wives of Windsor, um, which is super fun and exciting. There is no copy of the play in court. It was probably never printed outside the folio. Two gents was set from scribal copy by Ralph Crane, star of last week's Burbage Break. What up, Ralph Crane? Um, The folio edition gives us insights into the ways Crane worked and altered the texts, since it's one of the three Crane plays in the folio with, quote, masked entries, um, or initial stage directions at the beginning of scenes, which indicate the entrance of every character who appears in that scene, regardless of whether they actually enter at the top of the scene. Um, this is one of Crane's practices that makes it really difficult to tell what text he was working from. Mass entries aren't common playhouse or authorial practices, so we can't know whether Crane was working from foul papers or playhouse prompt book. Uh, the folio text also has virtually no other stage directions aside from entrances and exits, uh, which is probably another effect of crane's manipulation of the text so this is a really interesting play for looking at what ralph crane did to texts it's a master class frankly in crane's scribal practices so aside from the mass entries the play also features a dramatis personae at the end like many of the other plays we know he worked on for the folio um the quote names of all the actors are arranged by gender men first and also include short descriptions so we have duke father to sylvia and then valentine and proteus the two gentlemen then we have Anthonio, father to Proteus, 
Thurio, a foolish rival to Valentine. Eglamore, agent for Sylvia in her escape. Host, where Julia lodges. Outlaws with Valentine. Speed, a clownish servant to Valentine. Lance, the like to Proteus. Julia, beloved of Proteus. Sylvia, beloved of Valentine. And Lucetta, waiting woman. Sorry, washing woman? Nope, I'm going to go with waiting woman to Julia. Just weird textual stuff. Uh, the folio text is also full of parentheticals, which is a common crane practice of punctuation. So there's a line that says, it's, but say, Lucetta, now we are alone, this thing, tell me these things now because we're alone. Um, so it's, but say, Lucetta, in parentheses, now we are alone. Uh, they're mostly indicating parentheticals in speech, um, and are most common around forms of address like names or titles. So Julia, my lord, madam, etc. Um, other weird punctuation habits of cranes show up in the folio text like unnecessary apostrophes. So instead of the word happily, H-A-P-L-Y, we have hap apostrophe L-Y. Or instead of answers, we have answer apostrophe S. Um, and we also have some of his weird spellings like gift with a U, so G-U-I-F-T, extreme with an A, E-X-T-R-E-A-M-E, -E. seized, like I'm going to seize this from you, uh, with a C, so C-E-A-Z-E-D, and uh, Sira, which is a form of address for a young, impertinent boy, usually, um, which we would spell S-I-R-R-A-H, he spells S-I-R-H-A. Uh, finally, getting into the folio text even further, um, it was set by at least two compositors in the print shop, possibly three, and that might explain one of the biggest issues with the folio text, which is that places and relationships are super confused. Um, Speed welcomes Lance to Padua when they're very clearly in Milan, and then the Duke tells Valentine about a lady in Verona here when again, they're in Milan. Um, Sylvia's father is referred to variously as both Duke and Emperor. Julia may or may not have a father at all, and Speed is maybe Proteus's servant or maybe Valentine's. So the editor of the Arden II, Clifford Leach, uh, in 1969 assembled a list of 41 plot inconsist inconsistencies like these. And that's what I've got to say about the folio text of The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Wow. Yeah, this is the kind fun. of it's I I think this shit is really fucking cool and you know, it's times like these when I wish that we were also a visual medium because I I have uh visuals for all of this and I want to be like, "Hey, listeners, look at this picture, but you can't." But that's kind of that's kind of cool. Yeah. You know? And yeah, how do you deal with that in production? Like, do you just mm -hmm. fix it? Do additions oh, yeah, often yeah. fix yeah. it? Or? It's super, it's all super fixed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like it's the, corrected for you now. Yeah. The only way that you would have to deal with this in production is if you were using the 1623 text. If okay. you were like, I don't want an editorial apparatus. Fuck that noise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just went straight to a facsimile. Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. Okay. So... Some companies um, do that, so I've I've worked with some companies that do that without any kind of fixing, um, and that's when you run into shit like that. So it's not a good idea, y'all. Yeah. Not always. Like, no, you can you learn some weird stuff, and you yeah. come across things like this, and it makes you go, huh? I mean, 
you know, there are people out there who are like, Shakespeare was infallible. And okay. Believe that as much as you want. Yeah, no. But the scribes and the compositors were not infallible. So uh, they fucked with your Shakespeare, y'all. And you need a critical apparatus (laughs) to make sure that it is fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So. Yeah. All right. Take it away. (laughs) Do your thing. So on the production side, um, as this is one of Shakespeare's earlier or perhaps earliest plays, one thing that Shakespeare loved to do early in his career, because it's so easy to do, is um, make pairs and foils and doubles for the audience to very clearly hold up one against the other to compare and, I don't know, live their life a certain way, whatever. Um, but in in Two Gents, you have, obviously, you've got the foil of Valentine and Proteus. You've got the foil pairing of our two clowns, um, Lance and Speed. You've got the foil of even Sylvia and Julia um, up, up sort of held up against each other uh, as mirror images. Um, and, and also, I think, some of the peripheral gentlemen. Like, you've got evil Thurio, who's trying to woo Sylvia, but also nice Eglamore, who's helping her. So how you want to deal with that or show that or make nothing of it at all um, in your production is it's just worth noting that they are there. They are definitely there for you as antitheses or counterweights to each other. Also, as a side note about the ladies, the pairing of ladies, just as a general note, Sylvia and Julia are just way too good for this play and everyone in, in it. <laughs> um, they just need their own play. Can somebody just write them their own play? Can they have that? They're just too, they're so out of everyone else's league, really. So find yourself some some strong female leads to play these parts because they're worth it. They're worth it. Um, so give them that, give them that weight. The next couple of things I'm are on like the, I think I talked about the buck basket, the challenge, um, the staging challenge that every production will inevitably have and it's different for each one um the buck basket shorthand comes from mary wives of windsor because it's a literal buck basket of laundry that falstaff has to climb into but um metaphorically in this play you've got a couple of them one logistically is you've got a live dog on stage if you're not using crab if you're not using a live dog for crab you're doing it wrong um, you know, yeah. so you can retweet you, cosine. You're yeah. doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Like, you know, sometimes like in midsummer, it's arguable whether or not like the moonshine dog is real. I've seen plenty of productions go either way. But if you're not using a live dog, one, you're missing out on so much audience investment and such comedy that dogs will give you because they're dogs. So you need a live dog. And and so find yourself a dog or two, maybe you want to alternate. One really cool thing that um, that our touring troupe did the last time they took uh, two gents on the road was that wherever they went, they would partner with local shelters and pick a couple of dogs if they were there for more than one night, but they would pick a dog to feature. So they had a different mm-hmm. dog to work with every night. Obviously you want to like test the dog for temperament and see if yeah. they can you know handle their shit on stage. But um, basically they partnered with shelters to get, get these dogs adopted. Um, and that, you know, and like who doesn't love the dog playing crab, you know, um, which I always felt like it was a really cool thing. And I wish more theater companies would do that, you know, pair with your your local animal rescue and and showcase a really sweet dog um and and get them adopted you know 
because but but you know the the other side of that is uh there's a live animal on stage and everyone knows that live animals and babies inevitably invariably no matter what you do will upstage you and there's nothing you can do about it uh, they are unpredictable and adorable at the same time, which means they will always steal the scene from you. And your clown can be as clowny and as funny. They can be Bill fucking Irwin up there. But if he's got a dog with him playing Lance and Crab, everybody is still going to be looking at Crab and not at Bill Irwin playing Lance. So just accept it. Know it. Know that it will happen. Uh, and learn how to work around it. One thing I personally have found helpful having a live animal on stage is packing your pockets full of stinky treats um, to help keep them focused uh, if, it's a, if it's a more skittish dog. Um, I saw one production one time, you know, and you could go either way. I've seen like really small yippy yappy dogs, like a pug. Um, I also saw one with like, it was a big like Neapolitan Mastiff, just like chilling, being a big ass drooly dog. Um, I think any dog you pick is going to be fantastic, but, but it needs to be a live dog. So that is your buck basket. Your logistical buck basket is a dog and you just got to let them do their thing. The next thing to think about is, um, the ending. What the fuck is that ending? Uh, the, the near rape of Sylvia and the whole thing with the reconciliation of all the different parties and Julia still going back to Proteus, which like, girl, why? Um, the, it, it's a big problem that you will be staging. And I don't think there's a way to fix it. I don't think there's a, you know, stage the problem. Let people come to their own conclusions. It is icky. It is problematic. But it is, you know, something to know about and be aware of going in that that's going to taint the comedy and the love story for a lot of people. And yeah, I said taint. <laughs> but it, it really is. It will, um, let me retry, rephrase that. It will color your audience's experience of, of the quote unquote love story and the classic comic ending of, of pairings in marriage or near marriage or whatever at the end. Um, so it may, may on the surface look like it ends like a comedy, but really it's not great. So just be aware of that. Don't walk into that final scene carelessly, I guess. You know, stage the problem because it's there, but like, don't go into it flippantly either because you're going to piss people off. It's a big old elephant right in the middle of the stage. You can't gloss over it. You got to make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So those are those are the big things yep. for me production-wise. Yeah, that's what, that's what I got. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I've been trying for two weeks now to write a blog post pitched by someone in our marketing department. And I'm just, you know what? I'm just going to put the ideas out here for the people because I feel like I just can't anymore. I can't wrap my head around it any more than I've done already and I'm still trying to write it and still trying to suss out my feelings. So the the pitch was um and the question that like sent me into a tailspin was uh can there be a body positive quote unquote body positive Falstaff for the 21st century? Why does there need to be? Good question, good follow up. I don't think I don't think the question implies that there needs to be. It's just asking can there be uh knowing that you know, Falstaff is a 
is noted in all of his plays as a big fat drunk man and knowing that you know body acceptance body positivity is a movement that is very now uh you know and body politics are are bubbling up more into mainstream culture and not just like a side a marginalized thing anymore and then I started thinking about it and my knee-jerk reaction was well no like no, there cannot be because yeah, I think the text supports it. Yeah, because everybody's mean to false. Everybody is down on false stuff about about his body, right? Mm-hmm. But okay, so and also his personality, he kind of sucks. Yeah, but like those two don't go together necessarily. Like, no, but there are there is more than one reason people in plays say bad things about false stuff. That's right. The only point um, I was making. But but I mean, you bring up a good point that. His immorality, right, his drinking, his bad habits, his thievish tendencies, right, um, his yeah. immorality is linked to his weight and his size. And in the early in early modern culture, um, that was those two things were linked, right? Like the vice character, the gluttonous character, sure, sure. those kinds of failings of morality and failings in virtue, lack of virtue manifests in a in a misshapen body, right? Not unlike, you know, Richard III's misshapen body, mm-hmm. right? Um, so my first impression was, well, no. And then, you know, I just to be sure I knew what I was talking about. I started looking into, well, what is the body positive movement? I have a general idea, but like, let me dive in. Um, and first of all, like I, of course, know that standards are different for men than for women. Right. And I, as a woman and a woman of size, have feelings about that and about that Mm -hmm. double standard. Mm -hmm. Um, I have played Falstaff. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so then, you know, the, it just bubbled up a bunch of different, it's such an intersectional issue. Uh, it's a feminist issue. It is a, a racial issue. It is, it, it's like <laughs> body politics is at the intersection of a whole lot of margin, other marginalized people's politics. And so I, I sort of unlocked this big Pandora's box about it because then you get into, um, you know, anecdotally, I, I was told, uh, and then I followed up with John Harrell, who is playing Falstaff for us right now. Um, and keep in mind, John Harrell is a six foot something, very skinny, Yo, lanky guy. Needy. Right? He's needy a bean pole. Yeah. So he's a lanky man, yeah. and he's been cast as Falstaff, and he knew. Uh, he's Falstaff in Merry Wives and Falstaff in One Henry Four. He knew he was going to have to wear a fat suit for both of those parts. Um, he has chosen, because it's the actor's renaissance season and you can do such things, he has chosen to go for a very like comical, silly fat suit in uh, very ridiculous, like a blow-up Santa, basically, on his body um, for Merry Wives and a uh, slightly less ridiculous fat suit um, that gives him more heft in his middle uh, mm-hmm. in One Henry Four. Um, both, both times, though, it's a skinny guy wearing a fat suit and there's all kinds of inherent like insult and politics knotted up into that about like a thin person being inside every fat person's body and that's how it reads to people and being considered generally offensive i don't want to derail but now i'm thinking right yes this is what happened to me Uh, (laughs) this is what happened I, i mean i am way more interested in just seeing john harrell play falstaff without any augmentation Mm -hmm. 
and not like not editing the text and keeping like yeah he's fat as butter but clearly john harrell is not fat Mm -hmm. as butter and that's a line that never really made sense to me anyway whatever (laughs) um and just and i think i think there's comedy and opportunity and meat in that and i really Mm. would like john harrell to take off all the fat suits hey john harrell take off (laughs) your fat suits that's uh an interesting (sighs) choice yeah i think that's a really interesting choice well then that brings in money in that anyway yeah no but then that that brings in you know the idea of skinny people being called fat and Mm -hmm. so then i mean that opens up an entirely different insulting can of worms Mm -hmm. Um, whereas conversation right right um whereas you know so i had and, and i followed up with john about that um, and he was, um, as he always is, very generous about his insights and like going into playing false stuff. And frankly, you know, it, he wasn't chosen because of his body. He was chosen mm. one kind of, I mean, because it's his turn, really. Mm. You know, uh, we have a semi set core of um, repertory actors here and. It was not, you know, I don't think at the forefront of anyone's mind to to have like a shallow howl reading of like beautiful thin person trapped inside a fat person's body, you know, with Falstaff or whatever with John Harrell. I don't think that right. was part of it. Um, but that is semiotically how it can be read by some people in the audience. Um, on the other hand, you know, the another person who was sort of a late addition to the Wren company this year uh, was Rick Blunt. And Rick is a big guy. He needs no fat suit. He has played Falstaff before. He played Falstaff about five years ago on tour, um, and he was in the same track. It was in, he was Falstaff in, in Merry Wives and in One Henry Four. And so I also I was like, well, Rick is here too. So I followed up with Rick on his perspective on it because I was like, well, tall skinny guy, and then there's Rick who's like a linebacker, and and what is what was that for him? And uh, and and Rick bless him, helped me get out of my own head. You know, I was getting really, really mired in in the semiotics of it all and how insulting it is that um, large people will never be cast as Hamlet uh, and things like that. And Rick, uh, you know, I've heard him say in my hearing um, that fall, he considers Falstaff to be the fat man's Hamlet. Basically, I, you know, I I was getting too caught up in the things people say about Falstaff um, and and really filtering that through, of course, my own experience being bullied and like my reactions when I hear those words directed at me, right? Things like that directed at me and my own experience when those words were directed at me on stage playing Falstaff, for which my counterpart was given a fat suit and I was not. Uh, so like there's all kinds of stuff happening for me, but um, talking it out with Rick helped me simplify like I think I'm not saying his interpretation is the only or the correct interpretation of Falstaff but he does have a very simple interpretation of Falstaff which is that Falstaff doesn't care Falstaff has other priorities the the back and forth insults between Falstaff and Hal are the way they show affection which is a very British thing to do like take the piss out of each other and show affection so his reading of it was entirely different and he was like look I've got my own things about my body, you know, I've got my own insecurities, but that doesn't serve the character. And Falstaff is too busy being dope. So just <laughs> very Rick. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still sussing those things out. You can keep an eye out for that on our education blog because I will eventually um, have a, an article written. 
But yeah, so I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. But that's, uh, it was really sending me into a spiral of shame and anger, dark recesses of my body and my brain that I don't usually go into until I'm forced to for an article. So it was just something I've been grappling with um, for a couple of weeks now. So I'm interested in people's thoughts on it. Yeah. Get in touch, listeners. Uh, How about you? All right. Uh, Well, I wish that we had known this two weeks ago when we did our Sir Thomas More episode. Um, But if you are in the South, the Southeast particularly, uh, coming up in April, Resurgence in Atlanta, uh, which is out of the Shakespeare Tavern, is doing Sir Thomas More. um, And they are advertising it as the first performance of Sir Thomas More ever on this side of the Atlantic, which I feel like cannot be true, but maybe it is. Um, I don't know. I am not the Sir Thomas More police. So if you're around in April and you want to see that, they're going to be doing it. Check cool. them out. No, didn't didn't uh, Hedge Pig Ensemble or some... Oh, yeah, they did. They did. They did a Sir Thomas yeah, More. Yeah, because so... Sarah Himes was in it. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, suck on that, Resurgence. You're not the first ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Busted. Yeah. I mean... Also, that's a tongue-in-cheek suck on that. Like, no shade meant, right, my dear darling resurgence. Moving on. <laughs> it's dick bracket time. <laughs> that noise has gone around the bend, and it's... I know. It needs, it needs some recalibration, I think. <laughs> Don't all flaccid dicks uh, need some recalibration? Let's be so honest. So anyway, uh, last week's matchup is the much-anticipated... <laughs> Tamara versus Tamburlaine yes. and ladies and gents, Tamburlaine took it. Yeah. So kind of by a landslide, actually. I was not quite I was expecting it to be much, much closer than it was, mm-hmm. and it was not. So Tamburlaine's moving on, and we're saying uh-huh. goodbye to Tamara, who's a huge uh, dick. She uh, is. And you is, gave up I, a good fight, Tamara. You yeah. Did. I mean, I think she's a bigger dick than any of the people in this week's matchup. So you know, what do I know? Yeah, yeah. So this week, we've got those crazy, crazy bros from the Duchess of Malfi. They're mm-hmm. back. You remember them. One of them thinks he's a fucking werewolf. <laughs> Versus Angelo, the rapey, rapiest of rapers. And and what's the word? You I know, don't know when what you're, the word is. I don't know what you're looking for. You know, when you... Why am I blanking on the word? When you tell people that their thing is not a thing and you're... Gaslighting? Thank you! The gaslighter. The ultimate gaslighter. Angelo from Measure for Measure. You know them. They're all... uh, Flaccid floppy dicks. They're just horrible. They're horrible. So Mm -hmm. um, they are our second matchup in our... Mm -hmm. What do you call it again? The Elite Eight. Round three. Elite Eight. Thank you. Round three. Yes. The Elite Eight. Of our bracket. So get out there and vote for them. Uh, We put these polls out on Twitter every Monday. Uh, So follow Mm -hmm. us on the tweets at Hurly Burly Shakes. Mm -hmm. 
No, no S. No. I can Early never remember which is which. Yeah. On but Twitter. On Twitter. Find us. Yeah. We're Whamlet. Yep. We're there. Um, and the, the polls, unless I fuck it up, are usually active for four or five days. So even if you yep. don't listen to the episode on Monday, go to our Twitter feed. Vote. Yep. Also, if you follow me, I will put the poll on my own personal Twitter later oh, in yes. the week. And that's what I do. So just to try to get just try to get a, a little yeah. generate a little more a few yeah. more numbers. Yeah, they're, you know, different different crowd. Yeah, totally different crowd. I'm totally. trying to get as many people as possible. So get their input. Yeah. yeah. So get out there and vote. The Malfi brothers versus Angelo. Who who will advance? Who will advance? Uh, so thank you everyone so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for The Winter's Tale 201. Coming at ya. Yes. We're going to talk about sheep. I don't know if what we're going to talk about. We might talk <laughs> I about I mean, sheep. sheep's as good a topic as yeah. any, I suppose. We will definitely talk about sheep. I don't and know. And shearing we'll them. Mm. And singing songs about shearing them. Mm. Yes. It's my kink. <laughs> of course it is. Okay. Hit me with that quote. And why not death rather than living torment? To die is to be banished from myself, and Sylvia is myself. Banished from her is self from self, a deadly banishment. What light is light if Sylvia be not seen? What joy is joy if Sylvia be not by? Unless it be to think that she is by and feed upon the shadow of perfection. Except I be by Sylvia in the night, there is no music in the nightingale. Unless I look on Sylvia in the day, there is no day for me to look upon. She is my essence, and I leave to be if I be not by her fair influence, fostered, illumined, cherished, kept alive. I fly not death to fly his deadly doom. Tarry I here. I but attend on death, but fly I hence, I fly away from life. That is nice. I love that speech. It's real nice. It's real purdy. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at Hurley Burley Shake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I got six six packs in a pink Cadillac, ten thousand dollars in a sack in the bag. It costs thirty five. I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a will to act. The best speech ever, okay, in the history of Shakespeare. And I well, will brook no argument. None. I'm not going to argue with you. I you disagree. Can't. Well, but you're I'm not, not allowed to. Argue with you. you, you can't, because <laughs> I will not brook it. I will okay. brook it not. <laughs> Who's Brooke? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. You just yawn at my bad joke. I did. It was bad. Rude.